So, Father, we come now to your word. Father, we submit ourselves under its authority, under its power in our lives. God, your word reveals to us that we are decidedly not good, but then comforts us with the truth that you are good and reveals to us that we can be seen as good in your sight through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the promise of your word that you work all things. Even the worst of what this life has to throw at us, you work it all together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So Father, let us see your goodness again this morning. Lord, recaptivate our hearts and our easily dulled imaginations once again with the beauty of the gospel. We come to you with the same request of the brothers we see in Scripture, asking very simply, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Reveal him to us, Father, in these words. So, Lord, will you illuminate our hearts and our minds and our understanding? Father, help us to humble ourselves before you. Will you give us today, Lord, eyes to see, ears to hear, minds that can comprehend and know and understand, hearts to believe that you are good. Edify your church, glorify your name. Sanctify us in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. We uphold it as such today. We ask all these things for the glory of your name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is where we're going to be in our time together this morning. This is the passage Matt read for us just a few moments ago. If you're not there already, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And if you are here with us today for the first time, we're in week three of a message series called Ecclesia, where we are looking uh, at what the church is and, more specifically, what it is that the church is called to do. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we started with the foundation that this uh, word church has taken on a number of different meanings in our culture. Uh, but like any word, the word church has a meaning. And you and I have not been given the freedom to come up with our own meaning uh, for what it actually is. Words have meaning, and the word church has a meaning. So we saw two weeks ago that this word church, ecclesia, it simply means uh, assembly or gathering. But more specifically, as we read through the New Testament, uh, what we see is that a local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. So week one, we took a glimpse at the church at ground zero. We went to Acts chapter two, to the church on day one. And we saw that because this word church means assembly or gathering, in Acts two, there were people they were gathered together, and the church was born through the labor of their prayer. As they were gathered together praying, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Uh, they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised, and that led to the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he stands up, he preaches the gospel publicly to those who were gathered, and on that single day, 3,000 people were saved. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, he said that once we make disciples, the instruction is to teach them to 
observe all that he's commanded. So last week, Dustin Nally showed us the function of the teaching ministry of the church. It's to lead new believers and disciples in Jesus Christ to full maturity in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at the other side of that coin, which is preaching. A few years ago, when our church was still relatively young, and uh, we were still meeting over at Buford High School, we had a brother that came and visited with us one Sunday morning. He was from out of town and uh, just had some family in the area and wanted to spend a morning with us in worship. And so he came up to me after the service and, man, was super encouraging and affirming. And he just said, I'm so grateful to know that this church is here, so grateful for the work that you're doing. And he was like, the word ministered to me today and the singing and and communion and prayer really just fed my soul and was incredibly appreciative and and overwhelmingly generous in, in uh, his experience of being with our church that morning, he said, but, but can I ask you just one, one question about how you do things here? And I said, go for it. And he said, with, with this church is focused on Christ-centeredness, meaning he said, Christ is at the center of your sermons, he's at the center of the songs, he's the focus when we come to the table. He said, shouldn't we move the pulpit to the side of the stage and put the communion table in the center? Uh, he grew up in a tradition where he you was know, taught that we keep the table at the center because putting a pulpit in the middle uh, exalts man, and, and putting the table at the center uh, keeps the focus and the attention on Christ. And I think it's a pretty fair question, you know, because history has taught us uh, what happens when the church becomes too man-centered, what happens when it exists for the glory of man. Is there a concern that by putting all this in the middle that we are overemphasizing the role of man? But I just wanted to ask him a few different questions kind of leading up uh, to what I wanted to, to say to him about why we didn't do this. And I just asked him very simply, what, what do you believe about the Bible? And right off the top of his head, he almost word for word verbatim quoted uh, from a number of different doctrinal statements. He said the, uh, the scriptures are our ultimate authority in all matters of life and faith and doctrine and practice. Uh, the scriptures are the word of God. They're pure. They're infallible. They're inerrant. They're inspired. Uh, we champion the word of God as, as central to the life of all things that we do in the church. And I'm like, amen. Praise God. I said, and what is, as you read scripture, the role of pastors within the body of Christ? What's the number one priority? He quotes 2 Timothy 4. He says, it's the preaching of the word. And, and so I just, just ask him a really simple question. I, I said, what happens when a church gets away from the faithful preaching of God's word? He said, the church dies whether they know it or not. And so I just wanted to frame the question like that for, for him because I came down to this point. I agree with him. I said, there is certainly a danger in putting man at the center. I said, but should we not also look at the potential danger of putting the word to the side and what this communicates? And so it's a question that we have to ask that this morning, church, like what role does the word of God play in the life of a church? What role more specifically does the preaching of the word uh, play in the life of a church? You go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which also just happens to be part of your scripture memory uh, for this week. It's in your worship guide. Before Paul gives Timothy the charge in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, he lays a foundation for the priority of the word. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture. Everybody say all scripture. He says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
You know, it's uh, amazing, part, part of our uh, modern advancements with technology, you know, before you visit a church now, um, you can actually go online and look at that church's doctrinal statement and even listen to preaching. I'm just curious, how many of you did that before you ever came here on a Sunday morning? You read, yeah, like, so same thing, first service, uh, lots of folks are going to hear the word preach, they're going to look at what the church believes on the way in, but it is one thing for a church to have a doctrinal statement that says they believe the word of God. It's a very different thing for the church to function and practice as if it really believes its own doctrinal statements. So you understand a doctrinal statement is a really good starting point, what a church believes. So listen, if a church states unbelief in their statement of belief, probably best just not go visit that church, right? It's like if they're just making it known straight up, hey, we're not sound in doctrine, then they're probably going to spare you a couple of hours on Sunday morning. But we have to recognize it's not enough just to examine the doctrinal statements of what a church says it believes. What a church says it believes about the Bible is proved more from the pulpit on Sunday morning than anything else that they do. It's one thing to state we believe in the authority of Scripture in our doctrine. Does our practice actually dictate this? When Paul gives his charge to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, the charge is not go preach a word. The charge is not go preach some words, whatever comes to your mind that day. The charge is not preach your word. Paul's charge to Timothy is to preach the word. Church, I'm just going to identify the elephant in the room this morning. I recognize it it probably comes across as very self-serving for a preacher to preach about preaching, okay? Um, but, but what I want us to see this morning is, is that the ministry of the word plays a critical role within the body of Christ. And I, I recognize that what I'm about to say here in just a second, that this could seem like a major conflict of interest because this is my job, but I'm not standing here this morning on the authority of my word. We're going to stand on the authority of God's word. And this is what we see as we open up 2 Timothy chapter 4. We see in 2 Timothy 4 that the ministry of the word is the most important function of the church. It's not one of the most important functions. It's not a good function. It's not even just a necessary function. The ministry of the word is the single most important function of the church. Now, we're seeing through this whole series, the church has lots of functions. Last week, we saw the role of teaching, and then we're going to get into the role of of the ordinances of baptism and communion and evangelism and mission. But there's nothing that's more integral to the life of the church than the preaching and the ministry of the word. And what we're going to see today about the ministry of the word is that it is a twofold responsibility within the body of Christ. There's a responsibility for people like me and and other pastors and elders and our staff who, who share the word with you on a weekly basis, and then there's a responsibility that you have as well. Every pastor is called to faithfully preach the word, and every believer is called to faithfully receive the word. A church is only as healthy as its preaching of the word, and it's the most important thing that we do as believers in Jesus Christ. So uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, we're going to read together again verses 1 and 2 as we begin our time together. So the Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his life. He has discipled two young pastors in particular, Titus and Timothy. They are uh, pastors that he wrote what are known as the pastoral epistles to. And this is his final letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's his signing, sign-off words to Timothy as he comes to the end of his life in ministry. He says in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
So we see first this morning that we preach and receive the word in the fear and reverence of God. We preach and we receive the word in the fear and reverence of God. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote roughly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about 28% of our New Testament. So almost a third of the New Testament, Paul has a hand under God's inspiration in, in writings. His words are very, very formative for the life of the church. But nowhere else in all of his writings does he give a charge that is as serious and solemn as what he gives in verses 1 and 2. Paul doesn't charge Timothy in the presence of the congregation. Paul doesn't even charge Timothy in the presence of the elders. He issues a solemn charge in the presence of God. Right away, Paul is saying to Timothy, you will ultimately give account to God over what I'm about to tell you next. You will preach before people, but ultimately you will not stand and give account to people. You're going to give account to God. He gives him this charge in light of Christ, who he says will judge the living and the dead. He says, this is who you're standing in front of, the one whom you will stand before on the judgment day. He charges him in light of Christ appearing. It's the reminder, Jesus Christ will one day literally, physically come again, and when he comes, that's going to initiate the final judgment. At his coming, he reminds him that he's going to usher in his perfected kingdom. He is the king who is coming to claim what is rightfully his. So it's in light of these very sobering truths that Paul gives Timothy this charge. You preach the word. In light of who God is, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he's done, and in light of what he is coming to do, you preach the word. That this is the calling of the pastors of Christ church, and it's to take priority over everything else that we do. This word preach, it means very simply to herald or to proclaim. You know, a herald does during a time of war uh, roughly what an ambassador does during a time of peace. If you think about like some sort of medieval movie, what a herald is going to do is he's going to ride into enemy territory bearing the flag or the banner of his king or his kingdom. And he's going to declare to the enemy the terms that have been entrusted to him. And so typically, you know, it's something to the effect of, hey, surrender or we're going to wipe you off the face of the earth. So he comes in. That, that was the message of the king. Tell them to surrender or otherwise we're coming for them. And, and as the steward of that message, the herald is not given editorial freedom on its content. You know, this could be potentially very costly for the herald. Oftentimes the herald did not make it back to his own camp because the message was not well received. Sometimes the message was to take his life for delivering it. And so he's not given freedom. He doesn't get to go in the enemy territory and say, you know what? The king's just having a bad day. Don't worry about what he's saying. Let's all just go home. We're good here. He's not given the freedom to do this. And so we're we're called to herald the good news, to announce the good news, because the good news is news. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system. It is not prescriptive telling us this is what we can do, and if we do enough of it, maybe one day we'll get heaven. Christianity is descriptive. It tells us this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The work of preaching is a work of announcing and heralding because the message we have been given is news. And so Paul's telling Timothy, preach the word, announce the news, herald the news. Come in to declare that God has defeated death and sin and hell and the grave through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus Christ. Tell them that all who will call on his name, who will repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, will be saved from their sins. We'll be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll be sent out on mission for his glory. Church, this is the message we've been given to proclaim. This is the work that we're called to do. It's the heralding of news. 
And that's what Paul is entrusting here to Timothy. Our message is the same message that was preached by John the Baptist. It's the same message that was preached by Jesus. We have been called as heralds to step into enemy territory and to announce, repent. Turn from your sins for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And our calling is to do this with all Scripture. We go back to to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We're reminded that all of Scripture, the totality of Scripture, listen, that means the book of Leviticus too. It's been breathed out by God. The imprecatory Psalms. You ever read some of those? Those are crazy, right? And Paul says to Timothy, no, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable. All of it is useful. God has given all of it to us and entrusted it to us for its preaching, for the building up of his church. And one of our convictions as a church, the most faithful way to preach the word is through the verse-by-verse preaching of the Bible, which we typically refer to shorthand as biblical exposition. As we read the scriptures, this is what we see uh, most commonly uh, being modeled for us through the pages of scripture. So you go uh, to the words of the prophet, Isaiah chapter 28. He talks about unfolding the word of God line by line, precept by precept. When we go even to the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, It says that as was his custom, he went into the synagogue, he opened up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he read the passage of scripture, he showed them what it means, he said this has been fulfilled in your your hearing today. I am the fulfillment of these words. He shows how the message points to him. This is what was done by Peter on the day of Pentecost. He opened up, or he he really quoted off the top of his head from the words of the prophet Joel. And very simply, this is what the word says, this is what it means, here's how it points us to Jesus Christ, here's how we live our lives in response. Tim Keller has given a a pretty good definition, I think, of expository preaching. He said, expository preaching grounds the message in the text so that all the sermon's points are the points in the text, and it majors in the text major ideas. It aligns the interpretation of the text with the doctrinal truths of the rest of the Bible, so it's being sensitive to systematic theology, and it always situates the passage within the Bible's narrative, showing how Christ is the final fulfillment of the text theme, being sensitive to biblical theology. So if we're going to faithfully preach the word, we do this very, very quickly here, there's at least four key questions we should always be striving to answer. Listen, that this isn't just true for me in preaching, I think this is true for you in your everyday reading of the Bible. No matter what text of Scripture, no matter what passage of Scripture you're reading, no matter where you are, all Scripture is breathed out by God and all Scripture is profitable. That means the law, that means the history, that means the prophets, that means the poetry, that means the gospels, that means the epistles, that means apocalyptic literature. All of it is profitable. All of it has been breathed out by God. All of it used for his glory for the building of the church and all of it points to Jesus Christ. So we should constantly be asking the question very simply first, what does this text say? What does it say? Part of Paul's charge to Timothy and to Titus is to devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture. What does the Word of God say? And so that's why you'll hear our elder team as they get up, they'll read the Scripture every single week, and they'll close off their Scripture readings with some variation of, this is God's Word. That's the reminder we need. Like, that was not Matt Cave's Word that he read for us this morning. It's not my Word. It's not our church's Word. That was God's Word. What does it say? And so we're going to get sometimes you know, into languages, into definitions, into meanings of words, but then we also are asking the question, now what does it mean? And not just what does it mean to us, that's a subjective question. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Not just what does it say to us, what does it mean for us? 
There's a real objective meaning here. Uh, The meaning for my life can't be different than the meaning that it was for those that originally received these words. What does it say? What does it mean? So we'll get into literary, historical context, the original meaning, uh, the interpretation of this. Then we're asking third, now how does it point us to Jesus Christ? All of Scripture, Old and New Testament, is either pointing forwards or backwards to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament writings and law and prophets, it was all pointing forward to Jesus. The Gospels show the life and the ministry of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is how we live in response to the fact that Jesus has come and the fact that Jesus is going to come again. So the fourth question we're answering is, now how do we live in response? What does this demand of me? Now that I know these things, now that this news has been announced to me, now that we've seen the word of God laid out, what does this mean for our lives? How do we live in response? So that's a definition of preaching. Now, here's a definition that's more related to the preacher. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones, his book, Preaching and Preachers. He says, preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. I love that. The chief end of preaching is to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. Church, understand, faithful preaching is more than just accurate teaching. It is one thing for someone to have a message. It is a very different thing for the message to have them. This is what the prophet Jeremiah talks about, how even even when the word of God is hard and it's difficult and challenging, he says, there is, as it were, a fire in my bones. And even if I wanted to shut it up, I couldn't because it would consume me from the inside out. It's not just the the articulation of of facts and data. It carries with it a sense of the presence of God in such a way that it leads to fear and reverence among his people as the word is received. So Paul gives Timothy these instructions. He says his preaching should be marked by readiness. He said, be faithful in and out of season. That could more literally translate, hey, listen, preach in good times and preach in not good times. Preach when the word is popular and preach when the word is unpopular. So the calling of the pastor then within the church is not to give people the words that they want, but to give people the words that they need. It's to give them not his words, but to give them the word. It's to give the lifeblood of the gospel to preach it week in and week out as we proclaim it the way the Lord calls. He says his preaching should be marked by confrontation. Part of this work, he says, is to reprove and to rebuke which means the role of those who who preach and teach the word, they're going to confront false doctrine. They're going to confront sinful behavior within the body of Christ. He says his preaching should be marked by exhortation. This word exhort, it just really means to to urge strongly in a direction and emphasize carrying out obedience to the commands that have been laid out for us in Scripture. You know, it's, it's easy to look at a passage like this. I think especially some of us who grew up maybe in like a hellfire brimstone kind of background, you're like, man, that sounds kind of heavy handed. You know, all all of this authority and readiness and confrontation and exhortation, that sounds kind of heavy-handed, but here's where it balances out, and I would argue this is one of the most neglected, maybe the most neglected part of this passage as it's uh, traditionally taught. Paul goes on to say, you're supposed to do all of this, Timothy. Being ready, confronting, exhorting, he says, do it with complete patience and teaching. Do it with complete patience and and teaching. I'm just curious, do we have any teachers in the room this morning, show of hands? Teachers, does your job require patience? Like 100% of every minute of every moment of every day, right? It requires patience. And, and this is where a lot of conflict gets generated within the body of Christ. It's with impatience. 
You know, oftentimes, man, it's so easy, like you're preaching, you're teaching week in, week out. It's easy to have moments like, gosh, I've been preaching this for two, three, four years. When are we finally going to get this? When's it finally going to get through? Or even you know, more mature brothers and sisters within the church, you're sitting there going, you've been preaching this for two, three, four years. It doesn't feel like we're making a whole lot of progress here. Patience. Patience, patience, patience. I think it's, it's important for us to remember when, when the, the scriptures talk about the ministry of the word, the metaphors we're typically given have to do with like planting and watering. It's, it's hard, messy, oftentimes unspectacular work where we don't immediately see the result. Now, let me tell you where a passage like this is extremely sobering for me as a pastor because it reminds me that I'm not just going to be held accountable for whether or not I preached God's word. I'm going to be held accountable for whether or not I was patient with God's people. Because here, here's what I know many of us have experienced. It, it is so entirely possible for a church to be articulate in its theological beliefs, sound in doctrine, faithful in its handling of the truth of Scripture, but the culture of the church to be harsh and domineering and abusive. And that's a betrayal of the gospel. Now here, here's a way that I, I think church has, the church just, just at large has really been infected by our culture, especially over the last five years. We love as a culture the 45-second soundbite of somebody tearing someone else to shreds, especially if they agree with our opinion. We love that. Gosh, it'll get 2 million views on YouTube. We'll circulate it around social media. And we, we amen it, man. It's like, finally, somebody who calls it like it is, somebody who doesn't hold back, somebody who's, who's not politically correct, somebody who doesn't care what other people think. Like, we champion this as, as believers. Like, like, where is this ever affirmed in Scripture? Like, where is this ever celebrated that we would intentionally offend people and and be be domineering and harsh towards people? Like, we are absolutely called to preach the truth unapologetically, but we're also called as the church to demonstrate love unconditionally. Back in the fall, those of you who are with us, we studied the book of Titus together, and we talked through that series about the role not just of gospel doctrine, but of gospel culture. A church, as Ray Ortland said, can betray by its culture what it says it believes in its doctrine. It's not enough to just have a sound doctrinal statement. It's not enough to to simply uh, have a a powerful demonstration of the word. We are called to endure with one another with grace and patience. So we want to be committed to the preaching of the word, but we've got to be patient with one another. And we do all of this out of fear and reverence for God, knowing that he is the one to whom we will ultimately give account. And that patience is going to be necessary because Paul goes on to show Timothy in uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, that challenges are going to come. He goes on to warn Timothy, verse 3. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And creates a contrast. He says, But as for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So second from this passage this morning, we see that we should hold fast to sound doctrine regardless of the cost. We hold fast to sound doctrine regardless of the cost. You know, Paul issues a, a solemn charge to Timothy, but then he gives him this warning. Your message is not always going to fall on welcoming ears. The church, understand that this is not, some preach this as if it's some distant future prophecy to be fulfilled. This happened in Timothy's day. 
This has happened in every century, every generation of the church for 2,000 years. There have been those who have fallen away from the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine. This was just before the turn of the 20th century. William Booth uh, is the founder of the Salvation Army. And he was once asked what were his, some of his concerns about challenges facing the church in the upcoming 20th century, in the 1900s. And this was his response. He said, I consider the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Church, that brother was a prophet because every one of those words came true. And they remain true even more so in our culture today. You want to hear a tragedy this morning? All across America this morning, all across this country, people are going to gather together in places like this. And they are going to hear messages where the Bible isn't even opened, is maybe a footnote to the thoughts of man, it's taught horrendously out of context, or it's outright denied. There will be professing followers of Jesus who will gather in churches where the authority and the infallibility of Scripture will be denied. The reality of miracles will be diminished. God's standards for morality will be ignored. The gospel of the kingdom will be overshadowed by political talking points and hot takes on the most recent culture war. The wisdom of God will be substituted for the pop psychology of man. Christ-centered preaching will be replaced by man-centered moralism and legalism. Biblical exposition will be replaced by what Christian Smith has called moralistic therapeutic deism. There is a God and he exists to make me happy and the church exists to keep me happy. And church, here's the greatest tragedy of all, is that hundreds, if thousands, if not millions of professing believers in Jesus Christ will hear it all and say amen. Here's the reality. Here's what we need to recognize this morning in light of Paul's words. If you want a church that affirms your sin, you will find it. If you want a church that will substitute the preaching of the word of God for political talking points and hot takes on culture wars, you will find it. If you want a church that's never going to push you you outside of your comfort zone and only preach on the things that keep us happy inside, you will find it. But here's what you and I have to recognize. When we find these preachers, when we find these teachers, when we find these churches, they are not God's blessing upon us. They are God's judgment against us because we have refused to tolerate the sound doctrine of his word. It's not a blessing, it's a curse. And it's a mark of God's judgment upon his people when we will no longer tolerate the sound preaching of his word and the sound doctrine that comes from his word. I love Paul's words from from Acts chapter 20 where he's uh, speaking to the church in Ephesus. He's giving a charge to the Ephesian elders also towards the end of his life and ministry. And this is what he says to them, that this should be the desire of every pastor, I think, on planet earth. He says to them, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. This is Paul saying to the church in Ephesus, I did not skip the hard parts with you. I did not just preach what you wanted to hear. I preached what you needed to hear. And what we always need to hear is the gospel. What we always need to hear is the word of God. We need to be reminded, church, that Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he was not a friend to sin. He came to die for it. And to be in friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. Whenever we are selling out, when we are compromising the word of God, compromising sound doctrine in the name of winning the world, we've already lost Christ. We've lost what it is he's called us to do. So he creates a contrast here. Paul tells Timothy, you don't be like them. He says, you be sober-minded. 
This is one of the qualifications for pastors and elders in the body of Christ. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, sober-mindedness. And man, what a timely word for where we are today in this age of conspiracy theories, culture wars, constant political division, constant polarization. How desperately do we need leaders in the body of Christ who are sober-minded, who keep the eyes of God's people on the coming of Jesus Christ? He instructs him, endure suffering. Why? Because Jesus never promised that we would be comfortable. He never promised that we would be popular. He never promised that we were going to be well-liked through our ministry of the word and our preaching of the gospel. Here's the reality. Jesus actually promised the opposite. We will receive backlash for preaching the word and upholding sound doctrine, not just from the world. Sometimes we're going to receive it from those who claim to be followers of Jesus within the church. You know, every generation of the church has faced challenges, but this is really where I'm burdened. If you're like that, like 25 and under generation, and and like my kids, this is my biggest concern, is that your biggest threats to sound doctrine aren't coming from the world. They're coming from people who claim to be followers of Jesus. We hear all these conflicting messages. The reality is, if you want to find the message that affirms your sin, you will find it. And even in this community, you won't have to look far. It's easy to find. Well, read a book. Well, this book said this. Well, well, I heard this pastor say this. Well, I heard this teacher say this. I went to this conference and I learned this. Just because someone has, been give, has given you permission does not mean that person has any authority. You, know, I've, I, you guys know I've, I've got three boys uh, at home, uh, nine, six, and four. Our youngest, Lincoln, he's got, um, it's, it's a Lincoln story day. I got one more for him on the end too. And so I can't do Gideon anymore because he comes to service now. So you're going to hear a lot about Nolan and Lincoln for the next few years. And then no stories about my kids for about a decade because they're all going to be in the room. So I got to get them while I can. And so uh, Lincoln is, uh, he's four. He's got this little bike with training wheels. And so uh, recently we, we had a bunch of kids from the neighborhood over playing and stuff. And one of the bigger kids in the neighborhood kept getting on Lincoln's tiny little bike with the training wheels. And, uh, you know, by the way, it wasn't any kid from our church. I just want to say that. Like, I'm not outing anybody right now. I was very, very careful with this, with this illustration this morning. But uh, and, and so I, I see, you know, the, the, the wheels, the training wheels are starting to bend a little bit. And, and I'm like, hey, hey, buddy, like, you're a little too big for that bike. That's Lincoln's bike. You, you don't need to be on that one. There's another one that's your size. You can use that one. And so I go inside. I come back out about 30 minutes later, and that joke was on Lincoln's bike again. I'm like, hey, hey, bud, like, we had this conversation, right? Like, you're too big for that, and you're going to break the training wheels, so, so will you please get off the bike? He said, but Lincoln said I could get on his bike. And I just said, well, I'm Lincoln's dad. And I said, you can't be on that bike. Because as far as I'm concerned, Lincoln is four years old. Everything that he has, it's actually mine. As much as I would love for him to have a job, like, as much as I would love for all my, I'm all about child labor if it would help me pay the bills of having three boys. Like, like as much as I would love that, I'm like, no, 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 that, that's not his bike, that's actually my bike. There's nothing that belongs to him at this stage of his life that was not given to him. That that belongs to me. Listen, just because Lincoln gave permission doesn't mean he had authority. Just because there's a culture that's being very permissive about denying the authority of Scripture, very permissive about denying the supernatural things that we find in God's Word, denying the, 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 the priority of God's Word and what it speaks into our lives and standards of, of sexual ethics and gender just because people are giving permission does not mean that they have authority. This is our authority, and this truth hasn't changed. This is our authority, and this truth hasn't changed. We hold on to this at all costs. 
Because you and I will stand before God. We will give account for what we did with this word. I will give account for how I preach this word. You will give account for how you receive this word. You know, I, I just, I'm a firm believer that the part of the reason why there's been such a departure from the faithful preaching of the word in our culture today, it's not primarily because people are afraid of men, but it's because they don't fear God. We forget that he's the one we're going to stand before and give account. So we, we stand in the fear and reverence of God. We preach and we receive it in the fear and reverence of God, which means we uphold it and we champion it at all costs. But here's the really good news for us this morning, because I don't know about you, I hear a lot of these things, and that sounds heavy. Gosh, what a burden, what a responsibility to be responsible for, for holding the line in sound doctrine. This is the good news. This is the announcement of the gospel. This is what we are reminded. Jesus has promised we're not doing this on our own. This is the really good news, but also kind of a sobering reality for us today. The reality is Jesus is going to build his church whether or not you and I are on board or not. Like, he doesn't need us. He invites us into this. But Jesus promised, Matthew 16, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell are going to overcome it. He reminds us in Matthew 28, the promise of the Great Commission, I am with you always until the end of the age. And we need him. Because apart from him, apart from his power, apart from his strength, apart from his presence in our lives, you and I would not make it to the end. And so Paul signs off in this passage with a strong word of exhortation to Timothy. Paul signs off with words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Friends, it should be the desire of our lives to have someone say this about us at our funerals. Paul's coming to the end of his life. We know that last words are lasting words, and this is what he signs off with, with Timothy. He shows the cost of the gospel. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Friends, that's our goal. That's what we're after. What does success look like in the eyes of God? It looks like this. So Paul sets our eyes forward. He's, he says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So third, this morning from this passage, we see that we will. Not we can, not we should, not we might. We will, by God's grace, persevere to the end. Because Jesus has promised us that we will. Jesus has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. It's one of the most precious promises of the gospel. Jesus says it like this, and this is why we just preach the gospel for what it is. Jesus has said, my sheep will hear my voice. They will answer me. He said, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and of all that do come to me, I will not lose a single one. This is why we can preach the gospel with confidence, church. We can be confident that all who belong to Jesus will come to him. And he's not going to lose a single one. He's going to be with us always. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. It's one of the greatest promises in the New Testament, Philippians 1. He who began a good work in you, he will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. If he has started the work in you, friend, he's going to finish it. None who are truly in Jesus Christ will ever fall away. We can't because he is the one that's holding on to us. 
It is Paul's perseverance fueled by the Spirit of God within him, fueled by the grace of God and the power of God in his life. Paul says that he's being poured out as a drink offering. And this is pretty fascinating if you study the Old Testament. A a drink offering uh, was was one of the offerings that was uh, poured out in its entirety on on the altar. And it really carried with it um, connections to the themes of victory and rest. And it's different than some of the other offerings where some of the other offerings the priests would keep some for themselves. In a drink offering, you poured the whole thing out. This is Paul saying to Timothy, I've held nothing back. I've run my race. I have poured it all out. I held nothing back. I've been thoroughly poured out for the glory of Christ. You study Paul's life. He's beaten to the point of death. He's imprisoned. He's persecuted. He held nothing back. He said, I fought the good fight. Now he finds victory. He said, I have finished the race. Now he finds rest. He had kept the faith. What does that mean? It means he held fast to the word. It means he held the line on sound doctrine. He did not shrink back from declaring the truth. And in this first century context, when athletes would compete in a race, if they were victorious, a laurel wreath would be laid on their head as a crown. And, And Paul points forward. He says, it's time for me to receive my crown. The crown that's going to be laid on him is the crown of righteousness. The the righteousness that has already been declared on us as followers of Jesus. Church, don't you look forward to the day when you will finally realize the fullness of righteousness in his sight? Don't you long to be free of sin? Don't you long to be free of failure and brokenness and temptation? Jesus Christ has already pronounced you righteous. You have been declared innocent, but the day is coming. We're going to see it in full. And it's going to be no more. We are finally going to receive what Christ has won for us. We're going to receive it freely in faith. Paul's crown was righteousness. And the great thing about this is it shows us this crown is not just for pastors. It is for all who loved his appearing. All who eagerly long and anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. And friends, make no mistake, this passage is a reminder for us that one day he will return. Our king is coming to claim what belongs to him. Our king is coming. We have been given a message to herald, to announce, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To announce the good news, our God has defeated sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To announce the terms that we we can turn from our sins, we can repent of our sins, we can call on his name in faith and freely receive this gift of salvation. Freely receive the fullness of God through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Set apart for a new purpose and a new life and a new meaning and a new mission for the glory of his name. And that's why we preach this word with urgency. That's why we preach the word. Because this gospel announcement encourages us to persevere to the end. We preach the word because all of the word points to this good news. It's what we need most, week in and week out. We need to hear the good news. So we preach the word because all of the word proclaims the good news. Um, our boys, as they've grown up, we've really used very consistently the Jesus Storybook Bible. Any of their families utilize this resource at home? Strongly encourage you to. Adults, uh, you need to read it for Bible Interpretation 101. And, and it's, it, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of not. How few of us read the Bible with a Christ-centered lens? That's what this resource teaches kids to do. To understand that the whole of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, it's all pointing to Jesus. Your whole Bible, 66 books, 1,189 chapters, it's all pointing 
to Christ. And so we had used as a family um, the first few weeks of this year, we're using a different resource called The the Biggest Story, which kind of ties together some of the big themes of the Bible, and we walked through that with our boys. We came back to the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, especially for Lincoln, just being younger, he's four. And and for some reason, even since he was really little, Lincoln has always been drawn uh, to the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross in the Storybook Bible. You know, for us, that that is a a fulfillment of prayer. Like, we have asked the Lord specifically for all of our boys that from a young age, their hearts would be drawn to the gospel. And so the other night, we reopened the Jesus Storybook Bible. We're going to start it over, starting in the Old Testament. And, um, And so we sit down night one, you know, beginning of Genesis, and Lincoln goes, um, when are we going to get to the part where Jesus dies on the cross? I'm like, well, buddy, we're about 40 stories away from that one. Um, just... The actual stories, remember all the stories are pointing to that. We're about 40 stories away, so we'll probably get to that around Easter time this year. And, and, and that apparently wasn't enough for, for my little guy because the very next day when I get home uh, from work, Emily's sitting on the couch, and, and Lincoln plops down next to her on the couch. He opens his storybook Bible, and he says, Take me to the part where Jesus dies on the cross. And, and church, this is why we preach the Word. This is why we preach the Word. Biblical interpretation from the mouth of a four-year-old. I hope you understand when we are working through Scripture, the text of Scripture, just like we did this morning, we're going to look at what it says. Might even have some fun and do some languages. We're going to look at what it says. We're going to look at definitions. We're going to look at meanings of words. We're going to look at what it means. We're going to do the work of interpretation. We're going to do literary, historical context. We're going to look at the genres of the Bible and how we read different genres differently and and talk about rules for biblical interpretation and how we take the meaning of the text to to ensure that that its true meaning is preserved for us today. We're going to get to how it applies. We're going to answer that question, what does this have to do with me? But as I am preaching the word, as you are receiving the word, as you go throughout the course of the week and you are reading the word, yes, answer the question, what does it say? Yes, answer the question, what does it mean? Yes, answer the question, how does it apply? But something should be crying out from within us saying, now take me to the part where Jesus dies. Take me to the good news. As you sit and you you hear the message every single week, as you read your Bible through the course of the week, something within you should be crying out, make the announcement. Tell me what it says once again. Announce to me one more time the good news. Proclaim the good news. Herald the good news. Tell me who God is. Tell me what Christ has done. Tell me who I was apart from him. Tell me who I have become because of him. Tell me what he set me apart to do. Announce the good news. This should be the cry of our hearts. We preach the word because the word points to Christ. And we are called to herald this good news. So the ministry of the word, it's a two-way street. I am called to preach it faithfully. You are called to receive it joyfully. Holding the line on the faithful preaching of the word, holding the line on sound doctrine, that is not just my responsibility, it's all of our responsibility. God's judgment will come one day, not just on those who preached falsely, but on the congregations who tolerated them. And we do all of this by the power of his Holy Spirit. We do all of this knowing that we will persevere to the end by his grace, by the power of his spirit in our lives. He has us in his grip. He's never going to let us go. And we make it our aim to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith. And we can keep the faith because our Father's keeping us. He's never going to let us go. So you just bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning. 
under the authority of God's word, we do practice the ordinances, administer sacraments. So in just a moment, we're going to come to the table and, and God's word compels us that we should not do this lightly. We should never do this just out of empty rhythm or routine. We should never do this thoughtlessly. As a matter of fact, I, I don't mind saying it would actually be better for you to not take of the Lord's Supper than to do it out of empty rhythm and routine. But we're commanded to do this through a thorough examination. So let's invite the Lord to do that right now, to examine our hearts, to illuminate the darkness of our hearts, to shine the light of the gospel into our hidden areas of sin. So what, what thoughts, what words, what actions, what habits, what behaviors, what is in you that is not of Christ? Let's ask the Lord to reveal that to us now. And as the Lord reveals our sin, let's be bold in confessing our sin. We're going to confess to him what he already knows, what is not hidden from him. And he invites us to lay it down at his feet. We have the assurance of pardon from 1 John 1, 9 that if we do confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just. He will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the promise we have in him. So Father, we thank you for making that possible through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus who died not just for us, but instead of us. Who took the penalty and punishment of our sins so that we could walk free. So Father, would the joy of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, recaptivate our hearts and imaginations once again. Lord, would we constantly have within us a cry from our hearts to hear the good news. So Lord, as we come to the table to remember what your son Jesus has done for us, to rejoice in the work that he's accomplished for us, to worship and to sing and to partake, would this all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you? Guard us against empty rhythm and routine. Guard us against going through the motions. Recaptivate our imaginations and our emotions and our desires with the beauty of the gospel. And help us rejoice now as we worship before you. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.